Amen. You can be seated. If, uh, if you've got your copy of God's Word, and I hope that you do, I want to invite you to open up with me to Exodus chapter 15. Exodus chapter 15. We're going to read the majority of this chapter today. Last week we looked at, on Easter Sunday, how Jesus or, or how Moses led Israel through a Red Sea resurrection, through the waters of the Red Sea, so that at the end of the chapter, their fear and their awe and respect of their enemies, the Egyptian, had changed to having fear and awe and respect for their God who had redeemed them. How their trust in their selves had shifted from a trust in God, having seen what He is capable of. And this morning we look at Exodus 15 and we see part three of a sermon series I've been in on what you do when your bondage is broken. And the answer is, is you, you sing and you praise God for what He's done So let's read Exodus 15 together. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and His rider He has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise Him. My Father's God, and I will exalt Him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is His name. Pharaoh's chariots and His host He cast into the sea. His chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of Your majesty, You overthrow Your adversaries. You send out Your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of Your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the hearts of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretch out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone until your people, O Lord, pass by, till your people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which you have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. 
For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously. The horse... And his rider he has thrown into the sea. What the people of Israel do immediately upon being redeemed is they begin to praise their God. They begin to marvel at what He has done. In particular, their praise manifests itself through song. They become a singing people when they see the redemption and the salvation that God has afforded them. And that is the first thing that I want you to see this morning as we consider what happens when our bondage is broken. The first thing in our text is that singing overflows from being saved. Having a song in your heart and a song on your lips and praising God through song overflows from being saved from your bondage and from your hopelessness turning into hope. In a moment, Israel goes from being scared to death of the charging Egyptians, scared to death of the ominous Red Sea piled up in walls that God calls them to walk through. In a moment, their fear shifts from the Egyptians and the Red Sea to an awe of God and a trusting in the Lord who has saved them. They see God save them from this hopeless situation. And when that happens, God doesn't say... All right, guys, an appropriate response now would be some praise, some hand clapping, some gratitude, some excitement. He he doesn't say that because he doesn't have to. Why? Why does God not have to tell them these things, but it naturally is an overflow of being redeemed? For the same reason that nobody has to tell you to think about or tell others about things that you love and are excited about. For the same reason that no one has to convince you to eat the delicious meal whose aroma makes you salivate as soon as you walk into the house and smell it. No one has to convince you or command you to talk about and tell others about what you're excited about or to eat what smells delicious because you want to. There's a hunger created, an appetite in you that overflows in action. And in the same way, when God gives hope to your hopeless situation, when God saves you from your overpowering enemy, it will spontaneously overflow into praise of God. I was a youth pastor for years before I came here to Galleon, and I remember part of what I would do is I would go to the different uh, athletes in my youth group sports games. And uh, in Florida, we had a pretty good small football school. And they had a record going of how many games they'd won and all that. And uh, I would go out to watch them. And usually at sports events, I'm pretty reserved. Um, 
If I'm coaching, I'm a little bit more into it, as some who've been to our games can tell. But, but when I'm a fan, I'm pretty reserved. And I kind of find watch the fans who are yelling and screaming and, and into it too much to be a little bit obnoxious, to be honest with you. Um, but I remember one game, there was five seconds left in the game, and our team was down and they had like 50 or 55 yards to go for a score, and their quarterback scrambled around until there was no time on the clock, and he lofted up a prayer into the end zone, into a crowd of people. And I remember when his receiver came down with the ball in the end zone to win the game, reserved Nick, without thinking and planning, jumped up yelling and screaming and excited. I didn't plan it, and I think everybody there who knew me and knew my general snarky attitude towards crazy fans, thought, what in the world? But, but the thing is, is when I saw this situation that seemed hopeless, where they were going to lose the game, they were throwing up a prayer, and then it succeeded, I spontaneously jumped up and began to yell and scream like a crazy fan. I didn't plan it. I didn't calculate it. But it happened. Why? Because celebration naturally overflows when victory is won. And in the same way, singing and praising God overflows. It is an overflow of being saved. But what happens so often is when we gather to worship God, when we gather to sing about what God has done for us through Jesus. We have not been reflecting on the victory that has been won for us. Oftentimes we gather to sing without first meditating on the fulfilled promises of the gospel of Jesus Christ, without reflecting on our new identity in Christ, without remembering what He's done and how He's brought us from death to life and broken our bondage. And when we are not reflecting on our Redeemer, our praise of God will be lifeless. We will find ourselves going through the motions. We will look more like statues than like those who are praising God and we'll find ourselves nitpicking the performance instead of engaging with our God. Friends, passionate praise of God is the result of reflecting on the Redeemer. Passionate praise of God is a result of reflecting on and truly understanding what the Redeemer has has done for you. Passionate praise is not an artificial feeling that you get that can be created in a worship service. It's easy to make music loud, to gather lots of people, to shoot lights and smoke and to have instruments that fill in the blanks. It's easy to do that and to create an experience that you have in the moment and then you walk out and nothing has changed about you. You're no more committed to the Lord Jesus. You're no more committed to living on mission, to personal holiness, to impacting your community with the gospel. But you, you had this spiritual high. It's easy to do that. And a lot of people 
do that and, and make a living. But true, passionate praise that glorifies God is the result not of an artificial feeling that can be created, but instead it is the result of reflecting on the Redeemer and what He's done in your life. Friends, if your heart is right, and if you're meditating on and marveling constantly at the jaw-dropping grace of God that has been shown to you, then you can worship in any setting. You can worship with songs that are fast or slow, that are old or are new, that are perfectly performed or are clunky. Because it's not about the performance, it's about the God who is worthy of the praise. Passionate praise is the result of reflecting on the Redeemer. That's why Israel's first response upon seeing what God has done, their first response upon their Red Sea resurrection is a worship service. It is singing praises to God because singing is an overflow of being saved. That's the first truth that's in our text. The second one that I want to point your attention to is why we sing matters. Why we sing matters. This song is addressed to the Lord. That preposition to matters. It said multiple times in the first few verses of chapter 15, the song is addressed to the Lord. They're singing about the Lord, to the Lord. They're singing about the Lord's greatness to the Lord. They're not just rehearsing facts and making theological statements about God. They're not just expressing themselves or putting their talent on display. They're not just going after a spiritual high. Some of those things are happening, but it's about so much more. It's a song that is making much of God. It is a song sung to God. He is the audience. The audience of the song is God. The content of the song is about God. The purpose of the song is God's worth being put on display. The audience of their praise in Exodus 15 is an audience of one, the God from whom all blessings flow and to whom all praise is owed. They're not singing here for man's applause. They're not singing to display their talents. They're not singing to put on a show. They're not worried about what their neighbor thinks of them singing out of key. They're not trying to put on a performance. They're not going to be derailed or disappointed by a missed key or chord. Their song is not to other people. It's to the Lord. It is an act of worship. It is an overflow of praise. In the Bible, from beginning to end, singing is not something that's watched. It's something that is participated in. It's not something that leads us to worship other people. Their skills and talents that God has given them. But it's something all throughout the Bible that aids us to lift our gaze above what's happening here to the greatness of our God. Are we saved Individually, has God worked in, in our lives individually? Yes. So absolutely, there's a personal element to this. Each Israelite who'd been redeemed would be singing this song. They'd be singing it thinking about how God has impacted them personally. And yet God didn't just save them, He saved a bunch of them. 
And so they're singing this song corporately together, reminding themselves, remembering what God has done. So there's a sense in which they're praising Him together. There's a sense in which as they do that, they shouldn't be worried about what their neighbor is doing. There's a sense in which when you're engaging with God through praise and worship, it shouldn't affect you what other people are doing. Right? But there's another sense in which when God's people who've been saved by His grace gather together corporately, it will affect you. When you hear God's people singing in unison of God's great work for them, it will stir your heart and it will remind you that you're not alone. Some of the most life-changing moments that I've experienced have been experienced hearing God's people singing His praises in unison together. I'm not talking about where all I can hear is instruments. I'm talking about when you can hear the voices of men and women, young and old, praising the greatness of God. And it's a taste of heaven. It's a taste of what it's going to be like one day. It causes me personally great joy to hear the redeemed of God praising the Redeemer and to be reminded that I'm not alone. But when you've gathered to praise the Redeemer and you notice that your neighbor who claims to love God, who claims to live for Him, is is standing lifeless, refusing to participate, clearly not engaging with God, it will discourage you. It will. I'm not saying raising hands and swaying and belting out a song at the top of your lungs is the only way to worship. I understand that some people generally are more reflective and reserved, and that's okay. God knows your heart. God knows if you're engaging with Him and thinking about Him and reflecting on what He's done for you. But generally speaking, the way that this works is engaging with God and worship is going to manifest itself in some sort of visible, audible way. So in the same way that when you're hearing a sermon preached, your eyes are rolled up in your head, it gives off the appearance that you're not engaging with God. When you are singing praises to God with God's people, claiming that you're redeemed and you look as excited as you do when you're watching paint dry, then there's a good chance that you're not engaged enough and you're not thinking about and reflecting on the right things. I'm not saying that we should, our services gathering together should look Pentecostal. I'm not probably against that as that much. But generally speaking, I'm trying to say this. People who are engaged with God and excited about God don't look lifeless. I know that some songs are hard to sing. Some songs sometimes are in a key that's out of your range. Some songs might be new to you and you don't know it. But if your posture when that happens is to moan and groan and criticize and complain, it is possible that you have come to serve, not to serve and worship God, but to be served and to have your preferences met. And church isn't about you. It's about Jesus. What are the great commandments in the Bible? Love God 
with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself. And I think that the two great whys of our praise and worship through song are the exact same as the great two commandments. Through our singing and praising God, we are to first and primarily love and focus on and give honor to Him. And secondly, we are to love and encourage our neighbor. I'm not saying that we're living for our neighbor's approval. I'm not saying that we're putting on a show to look spiritual and genuine. But we're trying to encourage others to engage with God. Why? Because He's worth it. Because God is worthy of our praise. He's worthy of our attention, of our focus, of our singing, of our reflection, of our lives. Side note. Biblically speaking, even though the focus here at the very end is on how a woman and a bunch of other women go and sing songs of God, biblically speaking, singing is not a woman's activity. Men. What's the first thing Adam does when God presents to him his new wife, Eve? He sings. What does Moses and all the men and women of Israel do as soon as they're saved? They sing. What does King David, who slayed giants and fought battles and was one of the bravest, mightiest warriors in the entire world, what is he also known for? He was a poet and a songwriter and a singer. King Solomon, the wisest man that has ever walked on the earth, one of the best administrators of the kingdom of God, known for his wisdom and well-thought-out opinions. He wrote psalms that are in the songbook of Israel. Jesus Christ, raised as a Jew, would have sung songs growing up. Even in the last hours of his life on Passover, celebrating it with his disciples, he would have been singing the psalms, the Hallel psalms of Psalm 113 through 118. Peter and Paul and the other apostles, Apostles, they constantly are singing praises to God even when they're put in prison cells and they have been willing to take risk for the gospel. They do what? They are in there singing praises to their God. The Bible is full of men and women who are willing to stand against armies, lead others into the face of dangers, take a stand for their faith at the risk of their life, even being willing to be killed for it. And they're doing what? They're singing praises to God. So often today, men think singing is for sissies and think that true manhood is about hard work, conviction, courage, and sacrifice. And I agree wholeheartedly. That is the things that true manhood is about. But to divorce those things from the biblical version of manhood where we respond to God in praise and worship with our lives and also with our words and even our songs is unbiblical. When we do that, we are letting our upbringing, our background, and the world's view of men control our thinking about what true manhood is. There are a few things in the world, I would argue, that are more powerful to witness than a man who is strong, hardworking, sacrificing for others, armed with know-how, and courageous, who is also empowered by God to humble themselves and to be vulnerable and to gruffly and imperfectly praise God because of the work that He's done in their life. For men and for women... The why of our singing matters to God because we are called to love God with all our hearts and love our neighbors as ourselves through our lives, through our actions, through our words, but also through our worship. So we see singing is an overflow of being saved 
and the why of our singing and the who of our singing that we're singing to, those things matter. But also what we sing matters to God. Not all singing is created equal. Not all songs are created equal. Exodus 15 is a song of exaltation and praise to God. Did you notice that it's all about how they're rejoicing that God slayed their enemy? Like in really graphic detail. That's a worship song. It's a song of exaltation and praise to God. Notice its content. Its lyrics speak of God's triumph, of His overthrow of His enemies. The contents of this song speaks about God's fury that will consume, His right hand that swallows up His enemies, His nostril blast moving the deeps of the sea. This is language of battle and warfare. It is but language of a victory that has been won. This song speaks of God who is for His people. It says, He is my strength, He is my song, He is my salvation, He is my God. It speaks of His name, Yahweh. It speaks of His majesty, His glory that is incomparable. It declares that God is unique in His holiness, majesty, and deeds. His character, His power, and His reputation stand alone among the false gods that the nations worship. None can compare to Him. His reputation precedes Him as the nations tremble at His greatness and at His commitment to His people of Israel. This song speaks of Him saving His people, but also leading His people. It speaks of His love and His redemption of His people whom He purchased by the shedding of blood. It speaks of Him leading them to his dwelling place, his abode, the place which God chooses to be met at. It speaks of him ruling and reigning as king forever. In short, this is a song that is primarily about who God is and what God has done. Does it include elements of Israel's response to God? Yeah. Does it say Do they say, this is who God is to me? Yeah, they do. But its primary thrust is about who God is and what God has done. About His greatness and His majesty and His character that's been put on display. The song is theologically accurate. It's not describing God with words that do not match His character. It's a song that tells a story of what He has done for His people. It's not merely describing their feelings and experiences. It's a song that describes both God's love and God's holiness, both God's justice and God's compassion. It's not one-sided with God's attributes, creating a picture of God that is not accurate. This is a song that is God-centered, God-exalting, and God-glorifying. Why? Because it's all about the greatness and the glory of God. And our songs today that we sing should be no less than what we find in Scripture. Not just when we gather, but on our own as we personally engage with God. You know what the Bible never says? It never says that old hymns or new songs are better. Because every song will find itself at one point or another being both new and old. The Bible never says that one style is better than another. It doesn't weigh in on the use of organs and guitars and choirs and praise teams and cantatas. You can... You can argue that, but I would ask you to show me where in the Scriptures it says that this is the best and this is not. The Scriptures don't weigh in on if old spirituals or Gaither specials or modern contemporary music is the best. Instead, what it does is it models for us songs that both repeat themselves over and over and over. How many of you have said, 
I'm tired of all those 7-Eleven songs. Same seven words 11 times. Go read the Psalms. Go read the Psalms. Because in the Psalms, there are, there, there's a Psalm that says the same line like 35 times. It's not a 7-Eleven, it's a 735, right? It's got that, and it also has songs that never repeat itself and tell a story. There's no stanza, there's no chorus. The Bible models both and calls them both songs of praise to God. So the Bible doesn't weigh in on style. The Bible does not validate our music and song preferences that we are so prone to turn into idols. Instead, what the Bible does is it models for us that the most important thing be that the content of those songs be faithful to tell us who God is and what He's done for us for the glory of God. The Bible models for us songs that are specific about His attributes, His victories, His salvation, and His trustworthiness. The Bible models for us songs that are primarily about Him and not us. And friends, the songs that we, we sing, they matter. They matter because for right or for wrong, the church's theology has always been primarily passed, not through our statements of faith, not through our study of theology, but through the songs that we sing. That's why when I ask you, what did I preach about two weeks ago? Most of you are going to scratch your head. But when I say finish this sentence, when peace like a river attendeth my way, you know it. On Christ the solid what? Rock I stand. What was my second point last week? You don't remember. You know why? Because we remember songs. God's wired us that way. Theology is passed on through generations, through the songs we sing. So there, it matters what we sing. It matters. So with that reality before us, with Scripture as a model here in Exodus 15, the Psalms and all over the place for gospel-rich, God-glorifying songs. What takeaways can we have? What things should we focus on as we think about this topic? I, I have a few. One, songs that present God in ways that don't match His character should cause us concern. Taking God's name in vain is about more than just not cussing. It's about not misrepresenting God in any way because God deserves to be understood and reflected on in the way that He's revealed Himself to us. So when a song presents God in a way that doesn't match His character, then that should raise a red flag. Songs today that make it seem like God would be miserable and lonely without us are not true. God is self-sufficient. I know it doesn't make you feel special, but He doesn't need you to be happy. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need this church to be happy. God is totally self-sufficient. In fact, before eternity began, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were just enjoying perfection together. It was God's choice to involve us and create us and sustain us and save us. God took a role in doing that so that we could enjoy being brought into fellowship with Him. But it's not because there was a U-shaped hole in God's heart. So when we sing about God couldn't cope, He was just struggling because He was missing me. We're elevating ourselves a little too high and we're thinking wrongly about God. God doesn't need us. He's self-sufficient. 
Songs that make it seem like God is more committed to us than to his own glory are not telling the truth because God is the ultimate. His glory is highest in his affections. He loves us, but he loves his glory more. Songs that make it seem like God is just kind of recklessly taking big chances and saving us, that he's taking these big risks and he's not really thinking this through, should raise red flags. Why? Because God is sovereign over all things. He is in control of all things. We are called to take risk for God because we trust that God never take risk. He is unchangeable and He is trustworthy and His promises are true so we can take risk because He never changes and He never takes risk. Songs today that speak in general terms about our salvation or about our God, they can be okay. But the best songs, I believe are Trinitarian. They praise the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They sing of God's specific attributes and His specific work for us. They put some doctrinal meat in the lyrics of the song about what God has done for us. And by the way, side note, relating to the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, God's presence that dwells in us, does not need an invitation to be summoned to join us for worship. If you are in Jesus Christ, the Bible says the Holy Spirit dwells in you. So rest assured when we gather together, the Spirit is here. He doesn't need a cordial invitation. And when the Spirit is truly moving, nobody's thinking about the Spirit. When the Holy Spirit is truly moving among His people in a corporate worship setting, no one's minds are thinking about the Holy Spirit. What they're thinking about is Jesus Christ. Why? Because the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, job description, always in Scripture, is to point people to Jesus. So if you want to know if the Spirit has shown up, are you thinking about the Spirit or are you thinking about Jesus? Because if He's really at work, you're thinking about reflecting on and praising Jesus Christ for what He has done for us. So, so all this sounds critical. I'm not done yet. We want to avoid, obviously, singing songs that don't describe God in a biblically accurate way, right? We want to avoid songs that have blatant false teaching and heresy in them. I'm not saying that those things that I just said are like, you're a false teacher if you like a song like that. But, but we obviously, I mean, no one, I think, would disagree that we want to avoid false teaching in the songs that we sing. But our standard should be higher than, is there any false teaching in this, Right? My seminary president, I once heard him after I graduated at a conference that I was at. He said, in many churches today, we're looking for songs that don't have any heresy in them, but that's not enough. We need songs that have genuine content. This is what he said. Listen to this. Some of the songs that I've heard today have no capacity for false teaching and heresy because there's not enough theology in them for them to be wrong. So our baseline has to, has to be better than don't have heresy. It can't just be avoiding things that are clearly wrong. It's actually thinking and saying and singing and writing songs that actually have something worth saying about God. So if the song doesn't mention God or the, the triune God or Jesus or our salvation or our response to Him. Then can we really say that this is a song about and to God? Songs that speak about our relationship with God as if He is our lover, our spouse, or our significant other, and use intimate language, to be honest with you, they weird me out. 
They're a little bit strange, and I would argue that they're borderline disrespectful to God. I'm a man, and Jesus is a man, and I don't sing love ballads to men. I just don't do it. I love God with all my heart. I'm willing to lay my life down for Him. But I'm not going to sing about this intimate, weird, borderline sexual relationship that I have through the songs that I sing. I'm not going to do that. I think it's, anyway, let me give you an example. This, this is a good test, okay? If you can swap out your spouse's name with the pronouns in the worship song you're singing, and it still makes sense and kind of sounds like a romantic love ballad, then there probably needs to be more substance to that song. Let me give you an example. Okay? If I went up to my wife, Kelly, on our anniversary, and I said, I wrote you a song. You ready for this? This is your gift. And I said, A mighty fortress is my wife, a bulwark never failing. She, that's a hymn, for those of you who don't know. It's a great that Martin Luther wrote that hymn. Awesome, right? But, but listen, if I sang that, she would not feel emotionally moved and loved because that doesn't make any sense for me to sing that song to her. Why? Because it's clearly a song about God. If I went to her and I said, Before the throne of Kelly alone, I have a strong and perfect plea. You're my great high priest whose name is love. Whoever lives and pleads for you. It wouldn't make any sense. She'd say, Stop worshiping idols, turn to God, right? Because it's clearly a song about God. But I went up to her and I said, Kelly, your love is extravagant. Your friendship is intimate. I find myself moving to the rhythm of your grace. Your fragrance is intoxicating in this secret place. She's going to be like melted butter in my hand, right? That's a song written to God. But I switch the pronouns and it makes sense. Or if I say, Kelly, draw me close to you. Kelly, never let me go. I will lay it all down again just to hear that you are my friend. You are my desire. Nothing else will do. Nothing else can take the place. I need to feel the warmth of your embrace, baby. Right? If I say that to her, it makes sense, right? She's like, he loves me. This is going well, right? It's a song written to God. I think you see the point. There, there's, there's tests that you can use. If you can switch out the pronouns and it sounds like a romantic love ballad written to a significant other, there's probably not enough meat and theology in that song for this to be a praise to God. I'm not saying that we don't respond to God in the right way. I know that there are psalms that probably speak in some of that intimate language in the Bible that mm, is a little bit, kind of makes me chafe a little bit, right? I, I know that there's a little bit of that, right? But I think we need to be careful when we think about these things, okay? So, if the pronoun test doesn't work, ask yourself this question. Could this song be sung at a self-improvement conference? Could this song be sung at a self-improvement conference? If the content of the song is all about you facing your fears, believing in yourself, not giving up the fight, keep pressing on, how important and special you are, without calling you ever to lift your gaze to the bigness and greatness and salvation and empowerment that God alone can provide to you, that's a problem, if it's all about you being blessed and things looking up and you're going to make it through this, but there's no gospel and there's no Jesus in it, that's a problem. If it's all about God's grace and His love and His acceptance of you with no emphasis on God changing you and calling you to a life of repentance, then it's preaching half the gospel. And that's a problem. Listen, it's good to listen to Christian music and radio, but we've got to do it with discernment. As a youth minister for years, and even, even now, 
I hear young kids and teenagers all the time singing popular secular song lyrics that have nasty, mature, foolish lyrics in them about how the world works. But it's popular and they hear it all the time and their friends are singing it. They're not really thinking about what it's meaning. And I hear them singing it as they're going about their day or when they all get together. And I just find myself thinking, come on, use your brain. You're smarter than that. Don't fall for that. But the same kind of discernment is needed today. Because today, catchy tunes, talented musicians, and hip songwriters are pumping out and marketing songs that get put on the radio, that draw crowds, that put on a good show, that play to the emotions of a crowd, that create a hit that will give you a spiritual high. But friends, if the song is not about God, and if it's not being written, and if the content of it is not exalting the salvation and the person and the character of God, then it's possible that we are filling our spiritual lives with spiritual junk food when there is better, more faithful things out there. The songs we sing shape our theology. You don't have to be a seminary trained man or woman to write a song to God. But it does help to have orthodox views of Christianity and a submission to God's Word. Things that far too many songwriters today do not possess. And this is what happens when you voice concerns like I've voiced here. Whether it be about a Christian song or a Christian book or a so-called Christian preacher, then you, you personally feel like the theology police... And you get labeled, you're just not being led by the Spirit, you're overly critical, you're just being judgmental, you're not being gracious enough, you're just too literal about things, and you're not a musician so you don't understand, all that stuff. But friends, the, the, the modern Western evangelical church doesn't know God's Word as well as it ought. To be honest, is oftentimes theologically confused, easily led astray, led more by emotions than by truth. And in that climate, a word of caution or clarification or criticism can be a gift from the Lord. The question you need to ask, if you disagree with some of the things I'm saying, and that's, that's fine. I think a lot of these are secondary issues. The question you need to ask is, is this, criti- is this criticism rooted in the Word of God Is it aimed at glorifying God and protecting God's people and helping them grow up in the faith? Or is this just being self-righteous and judgmental? If it's rooted in the Word, then you can remove from the equation what I think about it. So ask yourself, when I sing praises to God, when I'm moved by a song... Is it because my mind has been renewed by God's Word and I love to sing of His greatness and His redemption for me? Do I have discernment when I think about these things? Because I would argue that believers today are called to be discerning. Our theology has to come from God's Word. The songs that we sing have to come from God's Word. How we think about who God is and what He's done for us have to come from God's Word. Because we will sing. And singing and praising God is the natural response to being saved. But God cares about why we sing and God cares about what we sing. And we would do well individually 
in our own lives, as we love to praise and worship God, and corporately as we gather together, we would, we would do well to fill our mind and to use our voices to praise our God with God-glorifying, biblically-grounded, theologically precise, Trinitarian tunes that tell the story of our Redeemer and our redemption. That's what Israel does on the shores of the Red Sea. That's what Israel does in writing their songbook, the Psalms in the Old Testament. That's what true believers have done all throughout church history. And we today must take that baton forward to the next generations because Israel's songs and the church's songs are a proclamation of the gospel, a proclamation that the king has come, the king has saved, the king will return. They are good news of a God that saved. We sing because we're saved. If you're here and you don't know Him, and you haven't been saved by Him, that forgiveness is offered to you. A forgiveness that's even greater. A redemption that's even greater. A bondage being broken that's even greater than the one sung about here in Exodus 15. But you must engage with God in repentance and faith, believing the true gospel. If you're here this morning and He saved you, He's redeemed you. He's bought you back. He's broken your bondage. He's your King and your Lord. He's filled you with the Spirit. You're living for Him. You you love Him and you, you desire to live for Him. If that's you, friends, live your life praising Him through how you live, through what you say, and through what you sing. And if that's you this morning, I pray that as we close now and we think about what Christ has done for us, that you'll engage with God. Why? Because He is worth it. He is worth it. He deserves the praise of every tongue. So let's praise Him as we reflect on our Redeemer together. Father God, we thank You this morning for Your grace and Your mercy. God, every one of us has preferences and opinions about music. God, many love to sing and play and even have written songs. God, many love listening to music and and singing music in praise to you. And God, my prayer today is not that this message that, that can come across as critiquing and critical, Lord, be received in a way that is, is, is judgmental or self-righteous, God, but more is just, there, there, we've got to have a desire, Lord, for discernment. I pray that you will give us that gift. And I pray, Lord, that as we sing praises to you, they will flow from a heart that genuinely, truly loves you and loves to reflect on the redemption you have purchased for us. So God, as we, as we close now, if anybody needs to do business with you, I pray that they will. I'm up here to talk. I pray that people that need to talk to somebody will come down. And God, help us to lift our voices and praise you in a way that gives you honor and glory. We love you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.